So the story is that last week we saw Consensus change their privacy policy, which said that MetaMask is not just going to share transaction data, but also share IP addresses of users uh, to Infura, which caused a lot of backlash uh, in the community. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, y'all. How are you? Hey, Ryan. Doing good. Good morning, guys. How was the weekend? Tons of snow yeah. on Sunday. <laughs> it was a little bit of a surprise, I think, <laughs> that it was ended up being as much as it actually was. It's just a reminder that uh, winter is coming in real life, too. Uh, I know. I feel like it, it got, got really cold really fast if you're in the, the New England region. We were lucky enough to have it stay warm pretty late this year. Is there a correlation between like crypto winters and the actual winter. Do you guys think that's true? <laughs> I'll run the data and get back to you. I was just about to say that feels like a good uh, Fidelity Digital Assets research piece. <laughs> I hope there's going to be a Santa Claus rally in the crypto markets. <laughs> like, all right. I think we can uh, we can just jump right in. So we have quite a few things to talk about today. We're going to talk about some news, the next big milestone with Ethereum. We're going to talk about some updates coming related to MetaMask and their privacy policy and data tracking policies. Um, and then we're also going to talk about some news that we saw last week from the SEC. But before we do that, Parth, what did you try last week? Sure. Um, so just to give you some background, remember how we spoke a lot about real-world assets uh, and how they've become so popular in DeFi, right? So in the last year, year and a half, uh, we are heading in the direction of tokenizing all kinds of assets, uh, right? So these also are not just limited to the ones in DeFi ecosystem, but also like hard assets, kind of like real estate, private equity, private credit lines. And so, um, yeah, so last week I tried this protocol uh, or this website rather called rwa.xyz, right? Which is a website that aggregates all yield opportunities available in the real world through tokenization of assets, right? So imagine if there is if uh, if there is a DeFi protocol which has tokenized real estate or has tokenized US treasuries, uh, rwa.xyz is going to give you an aggregated list of these. And then it also gives you a bunch of comparison metrics uh, to compare these opportunities against one another. Um, so yeah, so that's that's something which I tried. Um, we are seeing this trend of tokenization of assets uh, outside of crypto. And uh, you have a lot of these big protocols like TrueFi, Centrifuge, uh, Maple Finance, Goldfinch, which do go out and tokenize hard assets. Hmm. Uh, and, so and those are it. included in this aggregator? That's correct, yes. Okay. What is the coverage like of the overall DeFi ecosystem? Uh, like in terms of TVL? Like um, yeah, and I mean, just in terms of like the biggest DeFi protocols being included in the, the aggregator. 
Yeah, so I think the aggregator covers all four of the big um, uh, RWA uh, DeFi protocols. So it covers TrueFi, Centrifuge, uh, Maple Finance, and Goldfinch. Uh, and these are the four protocols which are actively working on tokenizing hard assets. And that information uh, will be shown to you on this website uh, called rwa.xyz. Yeah, Parth, you see what's going on with protocols like Maker. And it's hard not to see like this transition of real-world assets on blockchains. It's sort of the intersection of TradFi and crypto. And uh, the the end of last year, my group wrote a research report that was like a retrospective prospective, sort of making some sort of uh, guesses or takes on what's going to happen in the year ahead. And this year, uh, to not to like spoil you know, what I'm maybe going to write about here, but I sort of have this theory of like the next evolution here, uh, like real world assets and, and sort of TradFi and crypto moving closer and closer. Um, part of that is like yields on chain. And historically, there's been an inverse relationship where if you went back, you know, two years ago, right, what were TradFi yields? They were sub 2% across the board. They were, you know, near zero on the Fed funds rate. Uh, and in DeFi, right, one of the noted benefits was higher yields, five, six, seven percent on on-chain protocols. Now it's the opposite, right? We see, you know, yields in, in TradFi are up and we see yields because you know risk has has been you know pulled off the table there's less demand for borrowing there's less margin demand and so yields are down in DeFi. and so we've seen this inverse relationship i think we're going to see a convergence because the two you know the two worlds that have previously lived you know side by side are going to increasingly intersect um, and you're going to see real world assets pushed on chain and that means that you know it's less siloed and more commingled yeah it's i think it's interesting to see how regulation reacts to this uh, as these things become more popular. But I would I would put a disclaimer and say that these things are all still really experimental. And so I think it's it's good to see the trend of how these hard assets are getting tokenized, uh, but it's still unclear on how how they would be offered, right? And the, big, the, the key missing piece at the moment in the US is the regulatory piece, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think like, to the extent that you kind of continue to see this trend, right? You create further overlap between crypto and DeFi and the, you know the traditional financial system, right? And, and I think that's where obviously we've seen a couple of you know notable failures in the market recently, um, and on the crypto side of things. But it's still it's much bigger than previous bear markets in terms of value at risk. But it's still relatively small when you think about it in comparison to the traditional financial services system, right? And the value there. But when you start creating more kind of you know, overlap or touch points between the two, I think that's where you're going to see kind of a greater need for oversight and regulation. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the, at the end. Um, cool. All right. Thanks, Barth. Um, so let's just jump in on the Ethereum story. Jack, you want to give an overview of what we saw there? Yeah, definitely. So if we go back a few weeks ago, I think we had a discussion uh, around ETH withdrawal timelines, right? We had the merge happen in September, and then whether it was explicitly the Ethereum Foundation saying it or not, there was sort of this timeline thrown out there of 12 to 18 months uh, after the Ethereum merge, we would potentially see the ability to withdraw uh, staked Ethereum, right? To so go back from the, the beacon chain, take your assets out, and then actually use that ETH uh, on the execution layer. Um, and we still don't have that liquidity available at the moment. And so there was sort of panic a few weeks ago when 
any reference to potential timelines for being able to unstake and withdraw your Ethereum from validators was taken off of Ethereum Foundation websites and social media platforms. Um, but recently, this past week, Thursday, December 8th, uh, according to uh, Ethereum core developers call, ETH developers sort of announced an updated target timeline uh, looking at around March 2023 uh, for the sort of long-awaited Shanghai upgrade, uh, which sort of the, the cent center feature of this upgrade is EIP 4895, which it, uh, enables staked ETH withdrawals, right? And, the, and they even said you know, withdrawals are the highest priority. I think it was clear after a little bit of a, a panic a, a few weeks ago of like, oh, oh boy, is this going to be like the merge where we just keep saying it's it's sort of on the roadmap and we're building towards it and it's going to take forever. Now it's clear it's the highest priority. Uh, January 5th, there's another call. I think we'll get a better idea of how testing is going and, and if it's actually going to happen in March or, or maybe be a little bit you know delayed beyond that wouldn't be too surprising. Um, but there's a clear prioritization on withdrawals in the next upgrade. Um, and some of the other upgrades that were going to be a part of it, uh, EIP 4844 is the big one. Parth would probably know better than me. Protodank sharding, shard blob transactions. Like these are like small scalability pieces that we're trying to get added are now being pushed to a second separate upgrade that would happen potentially in the fall. Um, but it's clear now the focus is on withdrawals, not on adding uh, a ton of other you know, large upgrades uh, to this next Shanghai upgrade. Yeah. I would say just a small addition to that is that for, so EIP 4844 or protodank sharding is actually a, a monumental like upgrade. It's a really big one and it, that's obviously pushed out. Uh, and so I just want to sort of tell people that uh, so the call on December 8th, the all core developers call, this is all the, the, these calls are really cool. And you can imagine like a stand up being happening uh, and you can live stream all of those. So I would in case you're interested in on timelines or if you want to hear about what Ethereum core developers talk about, that's all available. So I usually put it on, just keeps running on the on the background. But um, I do have to say that as of now, they are still scoping out how ETH withdrawals would work uh, on mainnet. And so I, in my opinion, still think it's too optimistic to think that they will be enabled by March 2023. Um, I do see the sense, and this is also what we saw in the core developer call, on how Shanghai upgrade is is a big priority. But again, none of these dates are written in the call notes on GitHub, right? So, so even though it's it's there, it's being verbally talked about, but it's not set in stone. And um, even during the call, I saw that there are two different camps amongst core developers. One camp believes that focusing on scalability, such as the IP four eight four four or dank sharding, is way more important than enabling withdrawals, right? Uh, and then there's another camp which thinks that hey. $19 billion of ETH has been locked for a huge amount of time. Let's enable withdrawals first. Um, so also to give you a quick update, withdrawals have been successfully implemented on two out of the seven clients on testnet. So you know how during the merge, we first merge on different uh, testnets and then we go to mainnet. And so out of the seven different clients, it's already been implemented on two and it works fine. So I think it's only a matter of time and seeing how resources should be uh, focused on uh, on ETH withdrawals. Uh, and that's how we'll we'll reach to the point where ETH withdrawals are enabled. So just Parth, a quick question on that. How compared to obviously the merge and like other upgrades that we've seen recently, how big of a technical lift slash build is this? I would say, again, I'm making numbers up, but it's like 
one tenth of the technical. Of like the mer- yeah, the merge was huge. Like it was right. something really, it was monumental, right? Uh, enabling and even, even with that, you still you still think there's a pretty good probability that we could see maybe it get pushed out again. Yeah, and again, these are things which are pretty common and core to open source projects. Right. So it's not that they are working on time, like really strict timelines or deadlines. Mm. And so <laughs> there are 27 developers on call. If like 10 developers decide to take a few days off, <laughs> then you get the withdrawals pushed out by like a month. Right. Right. So but I, I still see that uh, there is a really good possibility that it happens in the first half of uh, next year. Yeah, and you can. Uh, I like to actually go to the market, right, and and see what the market's implying about. I was just about whatever the story like, is. What are we? Yeah, what are we, Jack? What are we watching in the market related to this, right? Because I think like there's obviously a pretty. There could be pretty profound implications with all of this liquidity potentially coming once people are able to withdraw. And obviously, there's like there's going to be checks in place. The withdrawal process isn't necessarily immediate, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm looking. Uh, in terms of liquidity here at the uh, liquid staked derivatives. Uh, so like Steeth or RETH or CBETH, right? The, the largest uh, liquid staked ETH, um, which again is, it's sort of similar at the moment to looking at the premium and discount on something like Grayscale's Bitcoin trust, right? There's a degree of, there's no redemption function that exists for Steeth at the moment. And so you need somebody on the secondary market to actually buy that from you. And if we say, you know, there's not going to be withdrawals of ETH for 10 years, right? We would expect there to be a huge illiquidity discount in the price of Steeth relative to the price of ETH because there's no true, you know, redeemability at par necessarily. You, uh, you're going to have to find somebody to buy that from me for the next 10 years. Now, we know it's not 10 years. We know at the moment it's, you know, likely three to six, maybe in the worst case scenario, 12 months or something like that. And we can see the market sort of price this in during different periods of time. Um, and right now we can see that the market's sort of implying that it looks like what they're saying in terms of a March or sometime in, in the first half of 2023 is probably going to happen, at least according to what the market's implying. So Steep is trading at you know, 0.992, so 80 basis points below what ETH is trading at. Um, our ETH, which it's a little bit harder to back out um, because it's a C token, it accrues the yield into the asset itself, but you can look at how many ETH you know, is is that RETH redeemable for when redemptions get turned on? And then you can sort of back out the math of what's the discount or premium. RETH actually technically trades at a little bit of a premium right now to the price of ETH, which is kind of interesting. But we can see across these staking derivatives that the di- any discounts that did exist uh, between the liquid staking derivative and the actual underlying ETH has shrunk. And that's sort of the market telling us or implying that there isn't a huge concern around the timeline and that you know, again, not not to say when it's going to happen, but 2023 withdrawals are, are likely to be enabled per what the market's saying. So, so Jack, if I can jump in for a minute, I, I was thinking about this over the weekend too and thinking what happens on the unlock and how do I explain this to people who are not deep into crypto and DeFi? And I was looking for an analogy and I was thinking about the oil markets, right? So you've got different types of oil. You've got W2I, you've got Brent, et cetera. Uh, they're they trade at different levels. So you could almost say that one would be similar to ETH, one would be similar to a staked ETH derivative. Um, but I do wonder, since we have Ethereum futures markets, uh, when you look at that market, what the market's telling you, do you look at the futures at all that might be out there on a, um, a, a traditional commodity exchange? 
it's not clearly a straight, easy analogy because you don't have the shipping costs. You don't have the drilling costs and um, organizations that are trying to forecast their production. Um, but I just wonder for folks who aren't as deep in this as we are, what analogies do you think might be helpful to, uh, to share? I'm still in my mind trying to figure out ways to explain to um, people who aren't in blockchain crypto, what does it mean when things become unstaked? Is it that you've got some pressure buildup and now people have access to an asset that they want to utilize? You know, might we see a real significant growth in DeFi protocol participation as opposed to liquidation and, and price compression? Yeah, not not directly answering your question here, um, but I do think your observation of like the market structure and dynamics of how Ethereum exists today will significantly change when withdrawals are enabled, right? Because you're accepting no liquidity if you stake at the moment. Now, of course, that's what you know. That's why Lido is successful uh, at the moment with with Steep because it offers you a layer of liquidity uh, while still being able to earn yield after withdrawals are enabled. Is there a bunch of people that started staking back in December of 2020 when you know what was the price of ETH at the moment? A couple hundred bucks, three, four hundred. I don't. I'm, just guessing. Uh, and now, you know, the price is three, four X. And so could you have a bunch of people trying to withdraw? And there's a lot of sort of interesting market dynamics. I do think, though, that in the long term, once you turn on withdrawals, like ETH staking ratio at the moment is only 13 and a half percent today. If you look at other proof of stake protocols, and I don't think that it'll get up to the level of some of these other proof of stake protocols, but most of them are 70 to 85 percent of of uh, the actual asset is you know, locked in, in validating and earning a yield. I think that each staking ratio could very well double or triple in the year following withdrawals being turned on. Again, it just sort of changes the, the whole market structure and flows of, of the asset. We're focused on the redemption piece of it, which certainly I, I think there will be demand on that side. But I think there are also, you know, particularly amongst the institutionals, people who are sitting on the sidelines kind of waiting for this ability to be right. You know, this exactly. Yeah, and I think there's a lot more of those people that yeah. are going to lock up yeah. their assets uh, than people that are trying to, you know, grab their assets as quick as they can out of uh, validators. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I do, I like that, that view because you're talking about utility and right now people have, I, I think my own opinion that people place, place a, a, an option premium on flexibility. And once you have that increased flexibility, then their their potential engagement within different staking for uh, proof of stake protocols may uh, may increase. Just like you're saying, Jack, like some of the other uh, proof of stake chains have a higher percentage of assets currently staked. Because if you're not spending it in some DeFi way uh, or utilizing it in some DeFi way, then it makes sense. Just like as if you were to have value that you deposit into some other. Um, vehicle, whether it be a, a, a certificate of deposit or some savings account type thing, you're looking for some in, income generation. Yeah, exactly. But it would also, right, there's like a lot of moving uh, variables. But like if you increase the number of validators, if they doubled, well, ETH issuance, technically, if you look at sort of the way it's structured now, it's it would increase, but only like a small marginal bit. Um, but then that would mean if you, you know, if you double the staking rate, from 13.5% to call it 25, 30%, uh, well, then you're going to drive yields down because transaction fees are being split across twice as many validators, right, on net. And so it's just, again, there's a lot of moving pieces here, uh, but it'll all be interesting to follow. 
Yeah, I think this should be its own like bonus episode. I I feel like I I there are so many things, but if we do that, I feel like we'll lose track of all other stories. But I yeah, we, we probably should wait till it actually happens, right? <laughs> you know, do like some observations of what we're you know seeing in the market. Um, all right, let's switch gears. So, um, Parth, do you mind taking us through the MetaMask story? Yeah. Um, so the next story is on privacy concerns uh, in MetaMask. So uh, to give some context. Um, obviously, if you're in this space, you know MetaMask, right? And so MetaMask is obviously, it's a huge part of interacting with crypto uh, in general. And it's almost like the step one of onboarding to uh, Web3, right? Uh, so the backstory is that Consensus uh, is this huge venture studio. And they own uh, two things. So they own a couple of things, but they own two things in particular, which are important here. So they own MetaMask, which is uh, which has close to 20 million uh, users. And they also own Infura, which is the biggest RPC provider, right? So you might ask a question, hey, what is an RPC provider? So an RPC provider is um, almost like a bridge uh, between your wallet and the blockchain, right? So you use MetaMask uh, for doing all the fun wallet stuff, and then you need to query and write to the blockchain. And that can be done using an RPC provider, so the story is that last week we saw Consensus change their privacy policy, which said that MetaMask is not just going to share transaction data, but also share IP addresses of users uh, to Infura, which caused a lot of backlash uh, in the community. Uh, and the reason is that uh, many people believe that it's against the ethos of crypto since you're mostly transacting in a pseudonymous way uh, whenever you're using decentralized applications. And so now, I think two days ago, as a response to that, Consensus is making a series of upgrades uh, and a bunch of changes uh, in the ways they collect information uh, to make it harder to trace IP addresses and transaction data. So that's that's the story. Um, any any first thoughts before we dive deeper? Yeah, I mean, I think this hits directly on what we spoke about last week, which is the trade-offs between security, privacy, and usability, right? I think, as, as you mentioned, like, if you're in this space, you generate, you probably know what MetaMask is. And the reason is, is because they make it really easy to interface with a lot of these protocols, right? Like, um, it, you know, it was a major step forward on the side of, you know, usability. But as a result of that, um, you know, there are trade-offs related to, you know, I would say primarily to privacy, right? Um, you know, I think, again, you're going to continue to see this push-pull between those three factors, and you'll have users that will prioritize the usability over the privacy, and then you'll have users that, you know, will choose to prioritize privacy over usability. But I do think, like, in terms of them updating their their policy as a reaction to the, the backlash from, from the ecosystem, like, I think that's a positive step forward, and they're trying to probably balance those um, you know, those three things themselves. Yeah, I think there's also more to it. Like, I do want to talk about the evolution of MetaMask, right? And so um, if you remember back in August 2020, um, all of a sudden MetaMask uh, changed its licensing, right? So it used to be this free open source MIT licensing. Uh, and then uh, in August 2020, they suddenly updated it and then they made it private, Right. And so and then they changed their privacy policy again on November 23rd, where they said they are collecting information, uh, especially IP addresses. So I don't want to speculate too much. And again, this is my uh, opinion, but this could also potentially mean that users can have different kinds of services or rather lack of service 
based on their IP address or geolocation mm. uh, in a worst case scenario, right? Because they're transacting through the wallet. Exactly. And you yeah. are, if there is a way that I am logging IP addresses, I kind of know where you live, right? And so so, so maybe this is more, and I, I'm also seeing MetaMask evolve as this big uh, company. Now they have MetaMask Institution. They have, uh, they're also trying to generate revenue. Um, so last year they also launched this feature called MetaMask Swap or MetaSwap, sorry. So it's kind of like Uniswap, but uh, it's all done hosted in the wallet. And they have made close to like $150 million just by the swapping fee because they charge a premium close to 1% on every transaction, which is insane uh, compared to other protocols. Um, so yeah, so and interestingly enough, Speaking of uh, of privacy policies, uh, in the same week, Uniswap also updated their privacy policy, right? And they said that they will share wallet addresses with third parties in case of legal proceedings or or regulatory affairs, right? But again, the the devil is in the details here. But we saw uh, uh, two uh, big companies who are huge, Uniswap and MetaMask, uh, recently change their privacy policy. So I, I wonder if there's something going on here. Yeah, I think this will be an interesting trend to watch. I mean, and I know we're going to go to the regulatory story next, but, you know, I think everyone in the space is kind of anticipating that there will be a lot of activity on the regulation front in the coming year in response to what we've, you know, just just experienced, right? And so it, it might be, you know, again, without speculating, right? It might be that, you know, these companies are positioning themselves to be able to react to inquiries and, and you know, actual tangible, uh, you know, regulation or, or guidance that's coming from different regulatory bodies. I think, you know, you hit it at the, at the beginning, like they have 20 million users, active users, right? That's a lot of activity, right? Um, and so they, they may they may very well find themselves in a position where they're being asked to do something by a regulator um, and, and they need to, you know, are, are getting themselves positioned to be able to do that. Um, you know, consensus is, a, you know, as you hit hit on a very big shop, right? Um, and so there's, there's a lot of risk there, I, I would say, for them. MetaMask is huge, but part of this that I find interesting is that was a quick turnaround uh, in terms of everybody talked about uh, this privacy issue and then sort of there was a, a rapid response from MetaMask. And I think part of it is, although they do have a monopoly or you know, a large market share, I think is the more appropriate phrasing uh, on you know, browser plugin wallets. Uh, there are competitors, right? There, there was a lot of funding in this last wave, this last year or so of competitive wallets. I think Trust Wallet just launched a browser plugin, XDeFi, you know, Coinbase has their wallet. Like there are a lot of competitors now and, and that sort of shifts the landscape from we're a monopoly, we can do whatever we want. And if we want to you know, change the privacy rules, even if, you know, people complain about it, we'll leave it. Well, no, now you're seeing sort of the free market where people will just shift wallets uh, if they really have to, if they care enough. Um, and so there's therefore this sort of response by MetaMask. Yeah, which I think, like I said, is, you know, they're reacting to what the market is demanding, right? Yeah. And I think that, you yeah, know, exactly. that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So, well, let's quickly uh, switch gears again, but on a somewhat related note, um, we know we saw some some new guidance out of the SEC last week. Um, Jason, do you mind just providing an overview of of what was in that guidance and what we think we're going to see moving forward? Sure. So, the SEC came out last week and essentially is encouraging U.S. public companies to disclose potential risks associated with uh, cryptocurrency. So I don't think that this in and of itself is uh, anything that wasn't expected. 
I think if you take a step back and you think about what the mission of the SEC is, it's literally, and I'm quoting from their website, uh, it's to protect investors, to maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. So if investors don't have visibility into the potential risks of the companies they're investing in, then they may not be able to make an informed decision. And, and I would actually just look at this as potentially just asking for additional reporting on counterparty credit risks, right? So if I'm a public company, I happen to have exposure to someone else. Uh, could, for example, it could be supply chain. You know, like I might be a public company and I have a dependency on a supply chain somewhere else. And if there is some um, impact to that supply chain that might impair my ability to generate my products, then my investors may want to know that. So I think this is very similar to that. Uh, but they're, they've drafted a, a sample letter for companies to look at. But I, again, I think this is in the spirit of making sure that customers or excuse me, investors have some insight into uh, the potential for uh, other business relationships that they might not see through typical disclosures. So I think this is um, just, again, sort of a, a step in the direction of clarity. It has nothing to do with whether or not uh, you, you want to position something as a security or a commodity. This is really speaking to publicly traded U.S. companies, asking them for additional information through disclosures. As you hit on, it, that's not really unusual. If there's any material information related to a business that's issue securities, generally there are disclosures, right? I think we've seen that in the crypto space, particularly with some of the miners, right? Coming out saying, you know, that they're obviously impacted, that they may need to pursue alternative financing. They may ultimately come to bankruptcy. So I think like these types of disclosures are not necessarily unusual. I think it's timely in that because of what we've experienced um, in the market over the last couple of months, I would say, this is more or less a reminder, <laughs> right? Um, or a clarification that, you know, if you have that that type of exposure, you need to disclose it. I, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, if you go in, you look at public securities filings, you know, and ed, like comb through the website, Edgar, you dive into um, financials for particular offerings, whether it be public equities or even um different types of funds, you'll go in there and you'll see listings of holdings or of assets. So you might see um, expected durations for maturities and things like that. So it's just another piece of data um, that, that folks can look at and question you. Do they have exposure to some third party? What would happen if the third party had some type of constraint within their supply chain or their, their, um, their fluid nature of, of moving ins and outs of particular balances and things like that? Right, right. All right. And like I said, we'll, we'll probably see a lot more on this front. So this is obviously an area that we're very closely monitoring and we'll continue to bring updates as they, as they become available. Um, all right. I think uh, that's all we had for today. Uh, thanks everyone for joining. Um, we only have one more episode, which is next week's episode. And then we'll be taking um, a break for a couple of weeks going into the end of the year. Um, but we look forward to that final episode and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. guys. Talk soon. Yeah. Bye. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT.
FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or used by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.